Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 117th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Antoinette Timilo. I'm the president of the Empire Club of Canada and your host for today's virtual event in partnership with Hughes Room Live on Black music and its influence on North American music featuring Julie Black, Dan Hill, Molly Johnson, Ron Westray, with moderator Rudy Blair. Now, before we get started, and I know we're all anxious to do that, I wanted to take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the Empire Club and make these events possible. Thank you to our lead event sponsor, Meridian Credit Union. I also want to thank our season sponsors, the Canadian Bankers Association and Waste Connections of Canada and our event partner, BBC and LiveMeeting.ca for webcasting today's event. Now for a few logistical items. If you're finding your internet feed is slow, please see below and click the Switch Streams button. And don't hesitate to press the Request for Help button if you are experiencing technical difficulties, our teams will be our team will be more than happy to assist you. Uh, and just you, a quick reminder. It's okay. And just, okay. And just a quick reminder um, to everyone on this call that this is an interactive event. We encourage you to take advantage of the question box to the right of your screen and let us know what's on your mind and if you have any questions for the panelists. It is now my pleasure to call this virtual meeting to order. For more than 100 years, the Empire Club has brought important issues of the day to Canadians. In 2021, matters of inclusion and accessibility represent our most momentous challenges and face us on every front, even as we battle the current pandemic. Today, in conjunction with Hughes Room Live, the venerable Toronto music venue, we are very pleased to celebrate Black History Month to remind us all of the important contribution our Black community has made to Canadian society. If there is one thing that has stained people the world over during this past year, it has been music. Our, our balconies and public spaces in our virtual world we have been nourished and sustained by musical performance. And so in honoring Black History Month, our panelists today reflect on the influence of Black music and the role of Black musicians on the canon of North American music. Moderator Rudy Blair, CEO, founder and interviewer of Rudy Blair Entertainment Media, will chair a panel of leading Canadian panelists in exploring how Black music has shaped and impacted North American songs and compositions, as well as their own work. American jazz trombonist Ron Westray will join Rudy along with Juno Award-winning vocalist Molly Johnson, Grammy Award winner Dan Hill, and Canadian queen of R&B Julie Black. Each musician will bring a different perspective to the table and share their vast knowledge of Black music traditions and its inspiration on their careers. None of this would be possible without the support of our sponsor, Meridian Credit Union. With its active BIPOC committee and commitment to issues of inclusion, 
we can't think of a better sponsor for our event today. A profound thank you, Meridian. I should also note that with the disappearance of live venues across Toronto over the past year, some 25 have closed their doors. We are very pleased that our partner Hughes Room Live is continuing to find meaningful ways to engage with music lovers through an even broader virtual platform. As you will see in the discussion today, while our panelists acknowledge our debt to history, they will also address the role racism has played in their own climb to the top. Each in their own way want to talk about the future and the way forward for black artists. Rudy, as I turn it over to you, I just want to say how pleased we are to have all of you superstars of Canadian music to our podium today. Thank you so much. This is such an honor to be part of this. It's an amazing event, and I cannot wait to be able to talk to these great artists, icons, and also you folks out there, because you get to send in your questions. I'm going to see them on my text messages, and I'm going to try to provide those questions to these great people as quickly as I can. You know, I want to go through again the panelists who we're going to be speaking with, because they are amazing people. First off, this first individual is an American jazz trombonist, composer, and educator who holds a BA from South Carolina State University and a Master's of Art degree from Eastern Illinois University. He has played with some of the greats, including Marcus Roberts in 2009. He was appointed to the Oscar Peterson Chair in Jazz Performance at York University. I think he just mentioned about he's been here for like ooh, 10, 12 years. Uh, he is widely regarded as one of the greatest university music professors of all time. He's got an album, he's got several albums, but one of them, Jimmy Jazz, and may I say, he's the greatest trombonist of all time, which is why I'm wearing this. Ladies and gentlemen, one of our panelists, Ron Westray. And I'm so glad that he is here. Thank you, Ron, for being here. Our next panelist is considered and has actually been named one of the greatest singers ever in Canada. Top 25. CBC Music said this. She has been dubbed Canada's queen of R&B. For years, she has done everything from being a singer, songwriter, uh, host, actress, motivational speaker, Juno Award winner. She shared the stage with some of the best, including Cardinella Fischel, Destiny's Child, who she's written music for. She's also performed with the Black Eyed Peas, and recently she shared that she was on the stage starring in a show called Caroline or Change, the incredible Julie Black. Julie, I've known you for years. I love you. I'm so glad that you're part of this. Thank you. Our third person. Let me tell you something. When we say icon and fiery, we are talking about this individual who's done everything over the years. Disco, rock, pop, jazz. She's done it all and she's done it her own way. But while she was doing all this great music, she was also giving back and breaking ground. In fact, in 1993, she helped raise over a million dollars for HIV and AIDS research. And just a couple of years ago, she's the founding mother of the Kensington Market Jazz Festival, not only given the stage, stages that have been, been taken away in Toronto, but made a stage for these jazz artists and helping local businesses. I bow to the Empress, Molly Johnson. Thank you, Molly, for being here. 
And our last panelist, I'll tell you something, back in 1996, no, yeah, 1976, if somebody told me when I was at my grade school, high school dance, that when I was dancing to sometimes when we touch, slow dancing, with a young lady, and somebody said to me, hey, Rudy, you're going to get a chance to meet this individual, you're going to interview this individual, and you're going to consider this individual a friend, I would have went, not going to happen. But it definitely has. And by the way, sometimes when we touch, if you go on YouTube, over a billion people have actually listened to this song. And it's actually in the Songwriters Hall of Fame now, just recently happened. He has written for everybody from Dion, uh, Celine Dion, Tina Turner, Britney Spears, 98 Degrees, Alan Jackson. He is a Grammy Award winner. He's just recently released an album. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the one and only Dan Hill. Dan, thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you, everybody, being part of this. This is why each and every one of you are icons. I want to get right into this immediately. You know, I was thinking about several questions to ask. But I think the first one came from a conversation that we all had uh, before all this happened. And it was something where I was talking about success. And Julie, you actually sort of straightened me out on that because what is the meaning of success? So as a black artist working in Canada, though you can win awards and you can perform, um, are you receiving the success that you deserve as a black artist? And Julie, I'm going to let you begin on that. Wow. Success is such a subjective word. Um, I know that, first of all, my success truly lies in my significance and the work that I'm doing uh, to leave an impact. You know, I was talking to some youth recently about influence versus impact. And we're in a day where so many people want to be an influencer and how many followers, how many views, how many likes. And I said to one youth in particular, I said, I'd rather have one follower and impact that person's life forever than a million followers and just have influence, just influencing because what I'm wearing or what I, what I ate for dinner yesterday, you know? And so, yeah, though the accolades and the opportunities have not been equal for black artists, that is obvious, that is the truth. I, it also has developed a quite a bit of resilience. And uh, for me, I give myself grace now. I'm 43 years old. I look back, I'm like, okay, at 16, 17, if we did this panel in my 20s, I would have had a lot of rage in me, a lot of anger, you know? But I also recognize that uh, God has placed me where I, exactly where I need to be. And I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. And I've been a great steward of my gift so I can still do all that I do. And then some with the wisdom, you cannot, um, you can't hurry up experience. You can't hurry up wisdom, you know, but yeah. So yeah. So Canada, definitely. We want them to, to recognize those of us, black artists in particular, um, who have been doing the work, who shouldn't have to start over every album, every single, all that stuff. We all know what's real. Most of us know what's happening. Now it's about what are we doing to make it better for the next generation? And how are we able to really have a sustainable career if this is where we so choose to, to live out our days? Dan, do you feel the same way? I mean, you've been doing this for such a long time with Grammys and Juno Award wins. Uh, you've traveled the world yourself. You've written for some of the biggest stars. But do you feel that you are respected with the success that maybe um, non-Blacks would have? Well, I, I want to uh, accentuate the positive. So I'm just going to like, you know, I'm not going to say why, but why at 19 were the people that were recording my songs all black, right? Uh, why sometimes when we touch, the first people in bands to record it black. Uh, 
why when I co-wrote In Your Eyes, you know, Cool Gang Custard, George Benson, uh, why were they black? You know, why did Tina Turner say to me, Dan, I was having some issues with, with Ike. I hear sometimes when we touch, I, she, and then she's telling me, man, that killed me. So then she says, okay, so I went to the record store and buy all three of your albums. I say, yeah. And she says, well, Dan, I listened to all three of those albums. You haven't written anything as good as sometimes when we touch, you know, you got to dig deeper. So she was my mentor. And because of that, then I bang out in your eyes, Mike, Michael Master, probably the greatest songwriter producer of all. And then what can I say? It's like a big, it makes me more money than sometimes when we touch all black artists, you maybe 10 have cut that song. And then because Tina to told me as a mentor, older mentor to raise my game. Well, that's what maybe right in your eyes, right? Uh, always, always uh, black artists in groups. My frame of reference is America. It's not Canada. I'm not going to say anything about Canada because I just don't want to. Uh, was a racism, is a racism in North America? Of course, you know, it's almost axiomatic to say that. But this is the very interesting thing about uh, black entertainers in media in America. Remember, this is my frame of reference. You know, I don't really know much about the media in Canada, but I've been spending a lot of time the last few weeks doing nothing but interviews with black urban U.S. radio stations, right? Well, they all know what everybody else is doing. The black media in America protects its stars, protects them, embraces them, and advocates for them. And I never saw any black singer in America ever, uh, you know, denigrate another black singer. There's a kind of a, a deep, deep loyalty. You just, but now I'm not going to talk to you about what, 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 what white artists say, because it's just going to make me mad. My experience, well, this is one thing that's very significant. In America, you have black urban radio, R&B. How do you have a CHR hit? Well, you usually go on AC charts or R&B charts. You go to the top three, then, then the mainstream Hot 100, then add your song. So that's one of the reasons why there's a far more thriving community for, for black artists. Uh, uh, do we have that in Canada? Well, of course not. You know, uh, what can I say? You know, I say to George Benson after we have a smash, George, Ben, I don't need this crap. You know, sometimes when we touch, you know, what can I say? You know, I'm not going to say what I said, George, come on, man, this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I'm the guy that helps co-produce Cool in the Game. They're listening to my vocal, James Taylor, because he needs to learn how to sing it. So I said to George, man, this is ridiculous. Now I'm 28. You know, I can write hit songs. I can sit back and have a margarita, play my guitar. You know, why do you need this ridiculousness of being an artist? He said, Dan, you're one of the best singers I've ever heard. You have an obligation to make more records. So then I go and make Can't We Try? What can I say? The number one biggest AC record of the year, US on Billboard. So I kind of rest my case there. Nothing but great experiences with all the black artists, groups, and the media. But again, my friend of reference is uh, America, not here. Ron, do you feel the same way? Because you're the perfect example of, um, you know, growing up in the U.S., but, you know, being here for the last decade in Canada, how do you feel about seeing the success from the U.S. and in Canada to what Dan was referring to? Uh, I think there are, are a lot of similarities. I mean, Obviously, Canada always kind of represents a microcosm of uh, trends in the U.S. So I think you see the same analogs, maybe at a, at a, a smaller uh, level. Um, black music, being a, being a musician, being an African-American musician, uh, 
I think there's a vast appreciation for our 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 the forms that we have um, brought, you know, to North America. Uh, I think that imitation is the um, you know highest form of flattery. So when we look at the way that black art in general has been appropriated, part of it is complementary. I think it comes down to um, intentions. Um, you know, the compliment is what it is, but then the intention of the imitation. So I think there is some uh, marginalization that goes on um, in terms of your cultural disposition. I think there is marginalization. I think there's a lot of subliminal um, subliminal, subliminal effects uh, that happen um, in lieu of your skin color. Um, but then the industry itself has a lot of cliquish um, type of patterns that have nothing to do with race uh, as well that you have to battle. So um, I think that uh, everybody wants some acknowledgement. None of us practice as hard as we have and, and go, in, go as deep into the shed as we have without wanting some form of acknowledgement. Um, and I think you, you get to a point as an artist where you have to decide what's more important, the, the acknowledgement or, or your passion. Um, and you try to find these happy mediums, you know, between your passion and uh, what's required of you in, in the industry and the, and the, um, and the, uh, the things, the negative aspects of the industry. Marley, you're the perfect example, of course, of being able to go from whatever genre that you wanted to, because that is part of your passion is music. But, as much as, and we've talked about this before, as much as everything that you've done and should have been hits and should have been bigger, uh, it didn't turn out the way, I guess, it was planned. Can you talk a little bit about what we're getting into right now and your experience with that and knowing that you're great at whatever you want to do, but not getting enough of the airplay and the concerts too, because you were always out of the box. You're always different from everybody else and what they're doing at that time. Yeah, I I fought against stereotype and pigeonholing since I was about 14 years old. I I really loved Aerosmith. I mean, I love the OJs too and Earth, Wind & Fire and stuff, but that rock thing, that, that rock thing I grew up with, um, it just didn't, we were a mixed race band, Washington Savage on piano, Jeff Jones, uh, you know, we were a mixed race Jewish Japanese guitar player. Come on now. We were complicated and we never, we never really fit in anywhere and uh, struggled deeply with that by trying to stay true to the music we wanted to make. Um, I just, I just didn't buy into it. I mean, there's that sweet little Fifi Dobson and I'm just watching that girl and I go, girl, I just hope we've made some movement here. So it's a little bit better for you. Um, it, because she too is sort of outside the stereotypical black singer thing. Um, I didn't really get any appreciation in Canada until I went to France. I mean, that's, I mean, sort of to Dan's point. I mean, I wasn't a megastar in France, that's for sure. They, they have a whole different kind of star system and a whole different way of working in Europe. Um, but really, it was the attention I was getting in France and other places in Europe that got me any kind of traction here in Canada. And that's a little bit sad. Um, it's a little bit sad that we have to wait until outside of Canada endorses us before uh, we're, we're respected and accepted 
in our own country. And that's sad to me. I mean, Barack Obama, a few, a few weeks ago at Matt Galloway's show said, how interesting is it that I've had all the, I've, I have these really great friends in the U.S. that I've had for years. This is Barack saying this. How interesting that I found out that most of them, as it turns out, were Canadian. It's incredible how we've, we've influenced the U.S. in our own way. When you think of the top five billboard spots right now, they're Canadians, I believe, and have been interchangeable Canadians for at least two years. So, you know, I, I see positivity. I see that now you can actually have a, a bigger career in Canada without leaving it as much as we had to leave it if we wanted that, right? And I think Julie and I will have another deep private conversation about why the heck we didn't actually do that and go to the U.S., as I'm sure she was invited to, as I was. And I just, you know, my parents, uh, like Dan's parents, almost identical to Dan's parents' story, came to Canada as a mixed-race couple where our fathers could have been lynched at that time in America for marrying these white women. And, you know, um, it's, it's, uh, Canada's a, it is a microcosm of, of the U.S. where we have racism, we have all the issues of the U.S., but there are a lot less of us and we are spread out mm-hmm. over this massive piece of land. So any connectivity, any trying to, have a, a, a black national radio station, these kinds of things. Canada's huge and we have low population for the, for the amount of space we have. And quite frankly, as a Canadian, I kind of like that. I kind of like the notion of lots of space and lots of room for you. There's lots of room for you. I think that's why immigration works well here in a way is because when you get here, you kind of feel that there might be room for you here because this is a big place very true and Fifi Dobson is in LA I think they just did a story on her too she's still struggling but she is such an amazing artist now it's coming out right now yeah she's hung on she's hung on down there in that big old bad Los Angeles and kept her leather jacket on and just kept you know Julie I'm gonna jump over to you though why didn't you leave and you did have opportunity to leave um, I did leave. Uh, I, left, I left more than once. I was signed to Sony when I was 14, uh, Epic. Um, um, and, you know, I was a kid star. It didn't work out. And then I came back. And school, of course, mom was like, listen, study your book. Study your book. In her thick Jamaican accent. And I signed to Warner Chapel when I was 19. Um, John Tita out of New York. And so I started off even though I put out like a single rally and et cetera, I started as a songwriter in a sense, like my first like kind of mature deal. And then I got signed to MCA and to, to Molly's point And even Dan, like the cosign came when Jay Boberg signed me to MCA records out of LA. And then Randy Lennox and the crew were like, she's ours. Is <laughs> Pardon me. Is Jay Boberg actually a Canadian? No. No, no. Okay. No. So, you know, I was on, I was on tour with Cardinal opening up for Shaggy, you know, and it was actually in Portland, Oregon that they heard this voice on this hip hop song, you know what I mean? And so, so I did, and it was amazing because, um, 
I remember my A&R, Clyde Lieberman, I'll never forget him. I, he still, we're still pretty close. Um, I called him my Jewish dad. You know, he taught me about a recording fund and, you know, you let's rent a car. You don't need the car service. All this money could really come back to you. Like I started to get into the, the true, it's called a music business on purpose. And so um, when some of my friends were driving Lexus and Beamers and Benzes, I drove a Dodge Caravan and saved and bought my first home when I was 24. So, you know, being the first person in my family to own a home. So there's things that the U.S. money that I, I made, I got signed to a healthy deal. I was able to really set my family up, you know, in a way. But what I will say is the well did run dry as I set up my own company and started to do it like on my own here in Canada, right? But what I will say is um, to my counterparts of this kind of the same era, um, I know that no matter what I will eat, I will always eat in, in Canada. I will always eat. And that's also because I'm, I'm very humble and I trust my gift. I trust my gift. Nothing is beneath me. Like I'm this, this, I'm stewarding a gift, right? It was given to me. I didn't ask for it. I didn't apply for it. God gave me this gift and it's for me to use it. And so I just want to make sure that I am truly just, you know, living in grace and really having others really give grace to get grace. You know what I mean? But I also in, I want to become, as I am, a key holder and get gatekeepers out the way. And more of us need to be to spread out and, and make some change for the next generation. You know what I mean? Like, come on. Like, I, I, can't, I, don't, I can't say I could be a slave right now. I'm not, sometimes I ask myself, do you think you have it in you to be a slave? Like, we got to really give props to those who really came before us and laid the, laid the foundation and, uh, and, and focus on truly, really and truly how we're going to set up the next generation. You know what I'm saying? I remember sitting and writing with Dan, like, I, I feel like just, like, at his, at his feet, so to speak, you know, this brilliant songwriter, being there with him and forcing him to sing with me on a beautiful song that we have together that one day we're going to just leak. Um, and I, just soaking it all in, being a storyteller in that way. You know, so there's there's lots there's lots to be done, but there's also lots that have been done, and uh, and now look at keeping it real. Whether you're a Trump UG, they call them Trump UGs that ran to Canada. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's so much. Where I'm like, wow, I'm in the I'm in the right place. I'm in the right position. I have my health care. I have a healthy heart, mind, and soul. My spirit is intact. I've been through some things, but the operative word is I've been through. And I could be on this panel right here and speak about it. You know what I mean? So I think we have to move with positive intent and, and know that, hey, look at what we get to do versus what we got to do. Okay, Ron, I, I don't want to keep on with this question, but it's interesting, though, because we talked about Canadians moving to uh, the States. You, my friend, moved from the States to Canada. Why was that transition important? And how did it affect your career? Could you not get what you needed in the U.S. that you could get here in Canada? Uh, precisely. Uh, ironically, uh, that was that that was the case. I don't get to talk about that uh, much in terms of just the kind of the personal decisions behind it. But uh, that was very much the case. Uh, it's interesting um, when we talk when Molly talks about this idea of um, always having to lean on the U.S. Uh, for opportunity. Uh, but in 2009, it was you know there was no Duke Ellington chair in the United States. There, there was no Oscar Peterson chair at a major university. There was no Thelonious Monk chair at Columbia University. Uh, the stream that I had prepared so hard to uh, um, be able to occupy, but there, guess what? There was an Oscar Peterson chair um, that uh, the government had just created in Canada. And uh, my friends came, they said, hey, 
uh, why don't you apply for this, Ron? The application said the search will be biased to Canadian citizens. <laughs> That's what it said at the bottom of the application. And I'm like, no, okay, and send it in. And uh, the campus closed that year. York University went on its major strike that year in 2008. That was the year I sent the application in. And, um, and then next year, 2009, the campus reopened and I made the short list and long story short. Uh, so it was one of these flip situations where actually um, Canada had what I needed in terms of opportunity, something that uh, America literally could not offer me at that time. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing story and how it's funny when you're in Canada, you have to go to the U.S. and you're in the U.S., you have to come to Canada. It seems like it's always that way, almost for any genre of music. We've been encouraging folks to send in their questions. I've got a couple of them right now. And I'm going to throw this over to Dan. Uh, this is from Alan. Alan is asking, I just watched a four-hour PBS program on the black church in America and its impact and connection on music. Has there been much effort on music in Canada from the black church in Canada? Okay, well, that's actually a, an excellent question. Again, you know, I don't want to talk about things that I'm not qualified to talk about. You know, so again, it, we all have different stories. We all have, we experience racism myriad ways, but just to make it simple, say through the lens of our career. So this is what I will say. Again, you know, since I was 19, 99.9% .9 of what I did was in America, right? Okay, so let's talk about the black church. Well, it's really interesting that Sam Cooke's father, well, Sam Cooke, was the greatest, most brilliant songwriter, singer of all time. Interesting that his father was a minister. It's also interesting that Aretha Franklin's father was a minister. It's also interesting that uh, Sam Cooke taught Aretha how to sing. So uh, absolutely without a doubt, when it comes to black church in, in groundbreaking, innovative, you know, over the top music, there's an absolute total connection there. You know, I could go on, but I think you get the point. So uh, again, because Canada did not and still does not have that kind of population as black, black people do in America, you know, again, I, I, I have to be honest, I don't know, but I could give you about know, 500 examples, Sam Cooke. Okay, I'll just say he was the first person black or white in 1965 to keep his own publishing, right? Uh, you know, uh, when he left that group, the Soulsters, which is a brilliant, brilliant Christian group and wanted to become pop R&B, you know, the flack and the, you know, the, um, the backlash he had was momentous. So, you know, we all know everything to know about Aretha Franklin. Um, we all know that really the greatest entertainer, songwriter, producer of all time, Sam Cooke. We also know that Sam Cooke signed Bobby Womack, uh, a brilliant, brilliant, but poor black singer-songwriter. And then Sam Cooke is so smart, he gets the Rolling Stones to cut it. And the first hit single the Rolling Stones had was Bobby Womack's song, This Will Be the Last Time. So essentially, Barack, you know, essentially, you know, Bobby Womack becomes a millionaire based on a, a, a white group. So the stories about uh, black uh, artists in and out of the church, whether you're talking about Dionne Warwick, what can I say? It just makes me extremely proud to be black, you know? So I'm sorry, I know that wasn't a direct answer. 
It's an amazing answer. Thank you, my friend. Uh, we've got another question here from Natasha, and I think this is going to go to Molly because it kind of mentioned something, Molly, that you and I were just talking about. And I'll read it to you. What can Canada do to reduce the racism that the Black community faces in terms of recognition that Molly mentioned so that such artists do not have to leave Canada? What is uh, the goal that we can agree on today to strive for? Molly? Well, maybe we can talk about the Junos for a minute. Um, <laughs> I remember, because I'm old, uh, being at the Junos when they weren't televised. It was more like the Golden Globe Awards, and we all sat around at the O'Keefe Center and had dinner, and people were drinking, and it was hilarious and fun, and there were no cameras, and it was, a dare I say, a gentler time, uh, until they put up the award for, what did they call it? I can't even remember what they call it, but I could tell you that it was Oscar, it was OP, Oscar Peterson, me, our little punky pop band called Altamoda, where we circled all the A's and I had a four foot high white mohawk. Um, yeah, I wore 1950s bathing suits with little matching skirts and everything. So there we were with Truths and Rights, Billy Newton Davis, Oscar Peterson, and us. <laughs> and you cannot imagine the freak out when I had to literally crawl over OP, hello, to go up there and get that award. And it was an outrage. And the whole thing, I was a young kid, but the whole thing smelled bad. It just smelled bad. And I just left the award on the podium and my guitar player, by the way, <laughs> I kind of left, said, you know, y'all, y'all need to sort this out. There's more to it than this. You need to listen to the music, not necessarily look at it. Let's listen. Let's listen to it. And I think over the years, Julie's, you know, Julie's um, generation, Car Cardinal, all of that, like slowly, we are building out, building that out. We're, we're certainly not there yet, but let me tell you, we've come a long way since that day when I had to do that. Um, I don't know what to say about making black music more accessible, because um, it, it's out there. I mean, you just, you know, whether it's a white radio station or not, you just turn it, it's there. Um, I think more Canadians are staying here. I think more artists are staying here. I think, I think uh, Sean Mendes and Justin Bieber, now they're not black, but they are here. <laughs> they're paying taxes here, uh, which previous generations left and took their tax dollars with them. So that's kind of an interesting new, new thing. I think we just need to keep having these kinds of conversations and we need to listen and we're moving forward. We are moving forward on that. We've come a long way, that's for sure, from what I, I've experienced. Julie, you know I'm gonna go to you because Molly brought up the Juno Awards and uh -oh. I really wanna talk about the incident that happened uh, and it basically happened twice and you were involved with this. And it was back, I do believe, and you can correct me, it was either late 90s, early 2000, when, 2000s, when there was a salute to a hip hop, 
uh, music in Canada and a salute to black music in Canada. And it was just the structure of this. Can you talk about that experience, please, and what happened and how you felt because you were part of this structure? Right. It was 1999. Uh, I was in Hamilton. Uh, there was a, a medley. Uh, we had, it might have been 2000 actually, but uh, it was Money Jane that we ended up doing as a medley. For me, I had, how old was I? I don't even remember. I was really young. So it was twofold. The Deborah Cox was a part of it. Um, uh, those guys there from out of Vancouver. Anyway, a bunch of us were a part of it. And rascals, I, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, Rascals. Yeah, a bunch of us. I remember, interestingly enough, though, sitting behind Celine Dion. Her hair was flat ironed, super straight. I just <laughs> actually remember. And I was like, row two. Like, I was like, okay. Um, and I actually had, I was still working at Royal Bank. I started signing autographs on withdrawal slips. Go figure. And uh, they don't have those anymore. Yeah, but I remember being there, like looking out and seeing the peeps and being excited. But it was a, it was a hurry. It was a scurry. Like it wasn't. Uh, it was basically that moment was a dinner mint moment. We were an afterthought. You know, it was a true afterthought moment. But I knew in my spirit that it was a fire starter for me and for Cardi, especially those of us who were friends and still are 27 years later. And so. You kind of, yeah, you, it, 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 you didn't, you felt like an afterthought, like a dinner mint. You know what I'm saying? But it was actually televised. And for me, it was awesome to be able to now get shows. It's interesting what the power of TV uh, can do. I wasn't signed. I didn't have a label at the time. We did it independently with my manager, Chase, at the time. But I, we, were, we were off to Vancouver and Winnipeg and Calgary and Edmonton. And I haven't stopped touring since. I've been on the road every single year since 1999 there has not been a gap and i am so grateful for that and so i do my best to encourage artists especially to work on your live show even if it's like acoustic show you're gonna eat off of that i'm eating off of singing virtually you know what i'm saying i'm making money in my sleep now because i've recorded i've really pivoted and like okay so so i go back to saying that that moment i remember it so well that what, what are you doing with the opportunity? How are you seizing the opportunity? So that might have been like a uh, drive-by thing for whoever was organizing it. Yeah, let's lump all the black people, do this like urban moment. But rather than complain, you know, that's where you make lemon, lemonades, man. I made some nice lemonade in 2021. I'm adding some, some Ray and Nephews to that thing. We, we, we adding some rum, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Having a good time. Because I also live, I live within my means. Like, I have a great life. I don't need for anything. I don't need for anything. There are things that I want. But that's the difference. I don't need for it. So now it's like, I want change. I want to know that they're not just calling me to present the award because Julie will do it well and she speaks well and she's fun and you're going to have a good time. All this walk of fame stuff, that's a whole other conversation. I have given awards to people who have had careers for two years, you know, versus my 26. And in grace, I go and I did it because I I would love for it for somebody, you know, that artist, it was Jessie Reyes, to be honest with you. She called me and said, hey, sis, they're giving me this award. I don't really want to, I'm not really about it unless you're able to be there and, and present it to me. Because, she, you know, she was my mentee many years ago. And so I had to really look back, sit, like, go inside now. And say, okay, Julie, don't ease God out. That's ego, E-G-O. Don't ease God out because the industry is what it is. 
I knew that if my eyes were to close, as my mom would say, if my eyes were to close that night, I did the right thing. You know what I'm saying? So we got to move ourselves out the way sometimes and, uh, and know and do what's right. I was there for that night. You did an amazing job. And also, if you remember, I had the pleasure of introducing you to a performance at Young Dundas Square. And I love the way you introduced it, but you just killed it the rest of the night. So you are absolutely right when you say you got to know how to do your live shows. I want to thank everybody for sending in all of these questions. I've got a ton of them, so I'm going to try to get in as many as we can. Ron, this one's from uh, Brenda. She asked, what advice do you have for young black musicians who are now being challenged by this pandemic and lack of in-person performance opportunities? What can they do to uh, propel them to be successful? Julie kind of went into it. I'm going to let you continue it. Um, well, I think it's a time to prepare, you know, uh, preparation. Um, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So uh, essentially, uh, this, we've been given a time to prepare. I mean, we, uh, in music, there's always a skill to perfect. A lot of young musicians, they want to jump out there, but you know that there are a lot of things that you still need to be working on in the shed. Uh, and this is the time to be doing it. Everybody wants uh, overnight YouTube, um, you know, sensation to happen for them after playing a couple of years on the alto saxophone. But the fact is, it's a lifelong journey. Um, it's like a fine wine. Musicians and artists, your craft gets better with time, as Dan Hill. And uh, so this is the time to take advantage of, um, you know, preparation opportunity and, uh, in, and also changing lanes, like uh, Julie was saying, in terms of how the industry works. you got to get your digital audio workstation set up. you got to uh, have your equipment um, that's going to be in line with being commercially viable. Uh, you have to have the chops, the abilities to record music for, for people uh, single-handedly. You have to be your own engineer now, <laughs> you know, not to mention the mechanical, um, you know, proposition of, of executing whatever the task is. So uh, it's a time to prepare. It's not a time to say, hey, what do I do? It's, it's, it's a time to go deeper, deeper still. Yeah. But you've been preparing from day one. I want people to know a little bit more about your history because I love talking about uh, university and you know what I'm talking about there. And the fact that the amount of instruments you do play. I mean, I talked about the trombone and in fact, folks, go on YouTube. There's a performance that he does uh, in Toronto where that trombone is just flying. Uh, you're hitting every note. I have no idea, but somehow you've done it. It's not just about preparing now. You should have been preparing, or folks should have been preparing yesterday. Precisely, precisely. Preparation is my thing. I mean, I'm one of those artists who a lot of people, you know, they, they, want, they want the opportunity, um, but they really haven't finished preparing. I know a lot of guys that I came out on the scene with 20 years ago, they still playing the same licks. No, you know, I love them. Um, but they haven't developed uh, as artists. I was always an artist to, uh, you know, I read the history and I knew what was expected of me. And I know how you evolve as an artist based on all the other histories I've read um, and how, how you have to uh, continually prepare and, and assume that you um, um, can get better. And, you know, uh, the reason Coltrane became Coltrane is because he never assumed that he could play, <laughs> you know? And this type of this type of um, idea of um, in, in in terms of like uh, the Art Tatum story, he he sat there, he heard, he's sitting there listening to a piano roll, which was four people playing the piano on the piano roll. He thought that that's how the piano was played, you know. 
Uh, so I, I actually, back to the trombone issue, I, I, I was never given any limitations about what the trombone could do. And, uh, and I'm glad I wasn't. So I was able to engineer a style that uh, kind of transcends the instrument. And I'm still on the preparation, uh, on the preparation train, you know, um, acknowledgement. Yeah, all artists want acknowledgement, but um, preparation is still my game. And a lot of times I've actually chosen preparation over acknowledgement because a lot of times acknowledgement, you know, what is required for acknowledgement, you know, um, nobody, it seems that no give you what's yours. If there's such a thing, um, uh, if there's such a thing as something that is yours, you still have to ask for it. You still have to beg for it. You have to fight for it or you have to take it even though it's yours. And so this is the world we live in. And uh, uh, my competitive spirit uh, goes so far, but my preparation spirit, being the guy that knows, being the guy that knows the, the craft, knows the history, um, that's more important to me um, uh, than acknowledgement um, in, in, in the big picture. Okay, thank you, my friend. We're gonna try to squeeze in as much as possible because we've only got a couple more minutes. Uh, Dan, this one's directly for you. A question from Cynthia. Does Mr. Hill feel that the Black Lives Movement uh, has brought in recognition and appreciation the influence of Black music has had in the N.A. culture? Has the BML movement really helped the industry, the music industry? Okay. Um, well, this is the deal. Um, Okay, well, racism, I, I can give, give you an example today, what happened that was thoroughly disgusting racist in Toronto. Uh, this is the great thing about, you know, Black Lives Matter. Uh, you know, uh, okay, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, that was the first time the mainstream media addressed that there was serious racism. Quick example, my dad, my mom and my sister were after the RCMP, yeah, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Well, what did the media say? They were communists, they were paranoid, they were hysterical. Well, we know now that, you know, the great thing is now the media is, is saying, you know, that there's systemic racism, homophobia, you know. So that in and of itself is a great improvement. Well, that wouldn't have happened without the shocking, I don't even want to talk about the George Floyd thing. I just get mad. So so that's a huge, huge stride for the, for the, for in Canada and in America. You know, so, you know, people, Molly, myself, Julie, I mean, we knew this, this stuff was happening when we were five. So was it a shock? No, no. However, it's a lot more visceral if you actually watch the video, right? But my brother and I are going, oh, oh yeah. So, I mean, it's horrifying, but it's like, it's not as if we didn't know this was going on. My dad, would, when he's getting his PhD, would go to jail in Toronto interview black prisoners, then they wouldn't let him out of the jail because they said he was a prisoner <laughs> opposing as a student. What? Okay, I rest my case. Sorry. I, you know, that leaves me speechless. And I, it's, it's hard for me to even imagine something like that, but I think we've all been through it ourselves to some type of extent. As we're slowly wrapping up this segment, uh, I'm going to ask each of you just very quickly, um, do you see things changing? Are we on the right path for black music and black artists to be seen, heard, and be financially successful? Dan? Well, for me, the definition of success as a musician, uh, regardless of races, if you can make a living just doing music and nothing else, you know, that's the bottom line. That's the success. Anything beyond that, 
if you're hit, if you're hit here, a hit in America, around the world, that's gravy, you know. Yeah. So if a black artist can say, Dan, yeah, yeah, I'm just writing songs, doing concerts, you know, I'm making enough to pay my bills, live in my apartment, then that that's a success, right? The rest is gravy. Molly, same question. Same question about success. I I agree completely with Dan. Um, if you're able to live a good life, a decent life. I, I, I mean, Julie's secret sauce, quite frankly, she's not going to tell you, but she's gorgeous. Also, she's a great songwriter. She's a great songwriter. And Dan's, I mean, that is, you need to own that stuff you're singing every night. Um, that's the sustainability of it. That's the success of it. Is, uh, I, I mean, Dan and Julie can both testify to this, that when you go out and sing something you wrote and people are singing it back at you, if it's 50 people or 50,000 people, um, job well done, <laughs> job well done. Ron, same question, the my friend. The ability of it is ownership of it, uh, writing those songs, owning those songs is, is kind of the move forward or the, the, way, the way to have su success. Thank you. Ron, same question. In, in, indeed, indeed, Molly. Uh, I think the things have gotten better, not only in music and in the arts, but as we go forward in society, uh, uh, things are getting better in certain ways. Certain things are repeating. I think when you go back to the model that Molly spoke of, the model that Julie spoke of, about this idea of uh, being different and having to be accepted, as 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 Molly experienced as more of a punk rocker, and the same thing that uh, Julie experienced as part of the hip hop community, uh, in terms of the the mass media, so they're, they're, this idea that there goes the neighborhood, it's like they want so much of the secret sauce, but they only want so much of it. And then when you show up with the palettes of the secret sauce, it's like a there goes the neighborhood type of effect. And I think we're getting better um, at that, and the appreciation uh, is a more embracing uh, appreciation uh, for black artists, black music, um, and um, marginalized communities in general. I think we're in a good time. We're probably in one of the better times than ever in terms of the attention and the pressure being put on uh, white supremacy. Uh, and that folds back into the way uh, we are we are treated as artists as well. And I'm just hoping that uh, the society, the world, it's not only happening in Western culture, but all around the world that we can um, somehow uh, achieve peace if it, if it is meant to be, you know, um, uh, as a part of the human experience. So I'm hoping we can some, somehow get there. Thank you, my friend. Julie, we started with you. We will end with you. Same question. Yeah, well, I think that one of the victories is hearing uh, white people, period, but white industry people finally be comfortable saying black, like black lives matter, black music. I remember when um, I put out my first album, This Is Me, and we were saying black music. And then when I put out Revival, we started saying urban. So you know, that, that's a win. People saying black, even people saying black, black lives matter. Like that in itself is success. I think that, and thank you, Molly, um, for acknowledging me as a songwriter. Um, I had major um, writing insecurities growing up. So songwriting ended up being the place where I didn't need to put grammar. <laughs> it, it didn't need grammar. It just needed my passion and my soul. And so um, I think that we've definitely moved the dial. We're in a better place. I love being where I'm at. I love being my age. I love being able to speak about my experiences. And finally, I'm finally not thinking about what's next, but more so what's now. 
Um, and I think that the more of us uh, mature and, and really want to be in different spaces, I think we have to spread out. Uh, as black people, as black artists, you know, Cardi is an A&R executive at Universal now. You know, once upon a time, it would be like, oh, are you Hall of Faming me? Am I not an artist anymore? You're, all, you're born once an artist, always an artist. And so um, I love, Ron, that you mentioned about, like, like, development and preparation. I prepared 14 months for one role in Caroline. That was like a three-week run. You know, I 14 months for the one role. And I, you know, I... As a you know, thank you. I just, I've been taking notes, like, you know, pardon me if my head was down, because to be in this space with all of you, it brings emotion to my eyes. People, this is like a, this is a masterclass that I couldn't pay for, you know, even if I had all the money in the world. So I thank you so much. I know it's getting better. It's gotten better. It needs to get better at radio. We need more, more people in programming and music directing. It needs to get better in television. You know, more people that are developing um, black stories, uh, you know, we're here. I'm, I'm born at Mount Sinai. I'm Canadian. I am Canadian, actually. And so, uh, so I'm excited to be able to, to just continue to lay, lay the groundwork. And, and it's not good enough for us to be the only one in the room anymore. If you're in the room and you can keep that door catched open, keep the door catched open. Too many black people, I'm going to speak to us now, are comfortable being that one pioneer. I'm the first. I'm the only. I don't want to be the first and the only anymore. Never wanted to. So it's time to pass the damn baton. Pass the baton. It's a relay team. Let's go, right? The Olympics, everybody gets that medal. The whole team, not just the one. So we need allies. We need co-conspirators. Every giant, black giant that changed the game or whatever industry had a white ally. Don't get it twisted. We didn't do it by ourselves, okay? So let's go. Each one teach one. It's time to move the dial, like, permanently it's about that time okay i'll get hype <laughs> no, there's a reason why i ended with you on this <laughs> i want to thank first all the folks who are out there who are listening and sending in their questions we've had a ton of them i'm sorry we can't get those questions in we tried to get as many as possible uh hopefully we can do this again and i can get these questions in i want to thank our panel two our panelists ron uh westray uh julie black Molly Johnson, Dan Hill, you guys are absolutely amazing. I do believe we have something else that's coming up right after this discussion. So folks, just stick around. We've got something else that's coming up and uh, let's go to it now. Great, thank you, Rudy. Do we really have to stop? Mm -hmm. Like, Julie, you just got us going. Like <laughs> all of you, tremendous. Um, I'm going to let uh, Uri Urshan, the relationship manager uh, for business banking at Meridian, who was our lead sponsor today, to provide the appreciation remarks. So over to you, Yuri. Hello, everyone, and thanks, Antoinette. Uh, my name is Yuri Urshan, and uh, as uh, Antoinette mentioned, I'm a relationship manager with uh, Meridian Credit Union's uh, business banking team. And uh, while that's my official title, I also have another job at Meridian that I take great pride in. And that has been uh, a member of our recently formed uh, BIPOC Employee Resource Group, which is dedicated to advancing our diversity and inclusion efforts. And uh, we proudly support initiatives just like the one you, you experienced. And um, we, we look for events that drive positive change uh, through partnerships and bring diverse communities and voices together. Um, several of our employees are watching today and, uh, you know, to be honest, most of them were drawn to this event because of the star power, which is great. Um, however, black music, as we've just heard, 
has and always plays an important and instrumental role in letting black voices be heard and often, often tackle very difficult and important issues like discrimination, systemic racism, and unconscious bias. And uh, today's panel discussion was definitely thought-provoking and very illuminating. And on behalf, of my, on behalf of my colleagues, I'd like to say thank you for letting us be a part of your event. And uh, at Meridian, we strive to have an inclusive culture where our staff, our members, our customers are valued, they're respected, and have a sense of belonging. So we stand behind your efforts today, and we wanna celebrate and thank Julie, Dan, Molly, Ron, our moderator, Rudy, and our host as well, Empire Club, and Hughes Room Live for making today happen. And uh, for more information about Meridian, shameless plug, by the way, um, and how we can assist with your financial well-being, uh, by all means, please wiz- uh, visit our website at uh, meridiancu.ca. Stay safe, everyone, and thank you. Thank you. I have to say something. Hi, Brenda Burja. Hi, Brenda. <laughs> Meridian, and she's one of my homegirls. Hey, Brenda, girl. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Well, thank you. And we might really take you up on your offer to do this again. We'll have to have a conversation with uh, Hughes Room Live and say, this this requires a repeat, guys. Um, you are all amazing. Thank you, Meridian, for sponsoring this amazing group. We don't normally have events like this. So as the president of the club, I'm really delighted that we've done this and this conversation needs to happen more. So, so, so make um, it happen. Make it happen. Yeah. I'll put you on the spot. Not we will. Set a date. Because one thing I will say about this, this movement and this Black Lives Matter and this Black History Month, all of this kind of PR we're committed to do, and we love this and we want to do it again, do it again. Decide the date. Do it. Whether it's monthly, do it. Make it happen. Okay? You're in position. You're a shero, Miss Antoinette. You're a woman at the table. Shout out. You're a boss. Get her done. The queen has spoken. We'll be be calling you, Julie, to set that date. Set the date. Let's go. Let's do it. Um, Let me tell you about our next event. And we like to do different things. We've got International Women's Day coming up. And we're really excited to have um, Rania Llewellyn, who is, would you believe, the first woman to lead a Canadian bank. Um, at Laurentian Bank. So she will be joining us on March 8th uh, in conversation with Jennifer Reynolds. So please join us for that event. It is also free. And uh, we will close this and we will regroup. Thank you all. Hi, Roy. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Mary. Thank you.